Make any space the space, Whiffers. Just can't shake that nose, Stalgia. Give us a call at 1-800-SOMEONE'S-GOT-YOUR-NOSE. Won't you get a whiff of that? Do you suffer from scent, Asthesia? When I was about six years old, my mom put out a personal ad, and out of it she met Ralph Butterfield, or Ralphie, as he came to be known to me. Ralph's life was quintessentially American, the worst of it and the best of it. He had a really hard childhood. He was an army vet, a hard worker, a dyed-in-the-wool old-school Democrat, and yet in his personal habits he was deeply conservative. He was a solid and dependable person and a creature of habit. His days went like this. Wake up at 6.30, make a coffee, drink it black. Disappear into the bathroom. 9 a.m., off to work. Architecture things. He worked for the same company for his entire life. And then he'd clock out at 6 p.m., come home, dinner at 7.30, fizzy water, lemon-flavored, and a mini Snickers for dessert. Crossword in his Eames lounger at 8.30, bed at 10. Football on Sunday mornings and on Sunday evenings. Classical music on his very, very loud Bose sound system. He never got too mad. He never got too happy. He was reliability itself, an eminently knowable man. And then, around the age of 80, he started to get a little bit weird. At the end of his life, when he was filling his crosswords with letters at random, but still punctiliously finishing each puzzle, I liked to think of Ralph's mind as the outer limits of the galaxy. We look up to the sky and we see planets, gas, debris. I looked to Ralph and I saw emotion, unpredictability, Alzheimer's. But in terms of lived understanding, what would it feel like to live on that planet in outer space? What would it feel like to live in Ralph's mind? We just have no idea. This episode is about uncharted territories with a focus on the natural world, but as I was preparing the episode, I couldn't help but make the parallel between this ineffable unknown of the universe and the ineffable unknown of our own minds. Nicely cementing the parallel that I started to make between Ralph's brain and outer space, one of the last things that triggered his memory was Gustav Holst's seven-movement orchestral piece known as The Planets. One day, towards the end of his life, I found his old CD and we listened to the whole thing. He's at the stage where he was regularly confusing me with my mother, asking me about his long-dead sister, and eating basically only donuts. But when I put that CD on, he sang along to every single note, every trill, every flourish, every silence he marked with a perfectly timed beat of his hand. I don't know. I don't have any really big conclusions except that it's really easy to focus in on the Alzheimer's thing as being the point at which I stopped knowing Ralph because it's something you can point to. 
But all those years of regularity, that unending routine of his life, the pickups, the drop-offs at school, the Tuesday night hamburgers, the Sunday morning football, always the same year in and year out. From my kid's perspective, he seemed super content. But as an adult, I wonder, was he? In all his predictability, what was happening in his mind? What emotions, what muffled frustrations and sadnesses and desires and furies did he protect me from? It's too late, of course, I'll never know. But I don't know if I ever could have anyway. We are, in the end, mysteries to one another. We're all uncharted territories. This episode, episode 15 of Perfume on the Radio, is devoted to these unknown spaces, exploring the unexplorable through imagination and, of course, through smell. We're joined in this episode by four artists, Carrie Patterson, Audra Wallowick, Helga Griffiths, and Donna Lipowitz. Perfume on the Radio is produced by the Institute for Art and Olfaction and is a monthly program devoted to exploring the world through smell. Before we get started, let me dust off this battered CD case and share a little more of Ralph's favorite movement, Jupiter, in honor of my own undiscovered and forever lost unknown, my Ralphie. Since we're on the topic of the galactic, I am happy to introduce our first guest today, Carrie Patterson. Carrie is an artist researcher working within the disciplines of astronautics, planetary science, chemistry, narrative medicine, and bonsai. She's based in that most galactic of places, Los Angeles, and we started our chat exploring how Carrie came to think about scent and outer space. Uh, so, Carrie, welcome. Hi, Saskia. Thanks for joining. So I wanted to ask you, um, just launch right into it, about your work thinking about scent in the context of sort of outer space. So let's start with your multi-sphere project, which um, I believe you you did in, you patented at least in 2013. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. That project actually began in 2007. Okay. Well, yeah, it took, long it took a while to get the patent, I have to say. <laughs> But the the work itself was produced in the short time of two years, <laughs> only two years to produce. That seemed like a long time at that moment, but that's not a long time when you're dealing with the technical specifications of something that had never been done before or what we thought had never been done before. Um, it's all through me having met a scientific glassblower in my search to materialize something that was just a sketch that a curator had seen, had been interested in and said, show me that when you've made it. So with that charge, I worked with glassblowers at Cal State Fullerton, and we had several failed attempts at making this object. And then I was looking around for other glassblowers, and I met Bob Maiden, this very, very talented scientific glassblower and engineer and inventor. And when I showed him my drawing, he said, you know, I don't know if I can make that, but if I can, it would have to be made as you drew it. And so with that, he started trying some things. And we, um, through, the, through the process, what I discovered is that his father was actually a perfumer and that he initially took on the project because 
it sounded and looked like something that he had heard about through his glassblowing mentor who worked at Los Alamos. During each bomb research, they were trying to figure out a way to keep these highly combustible materials, some of which were radioactive, separate from each other in a encased form that could be dropped off plane. It's horrible. Oh, wow. Right. Wow. But okay, this, this object that they were working on was number one, classified two radioactive and couldn't be brought out of the lab. But my co-inventors mentor had told him about it. What was very bizarre was that the multi-sphere initially came to me as an idea for representing the solar system in terms of the number of months of human gestation. And this relates a little bit to Kubrick and the 2001 Space Odyssey final uh, scene where there's this fetus floating in outer space. It's very weird. It's like space is female, but the body has disappeared. and It, it uncannily sort of fits in with the pro-life narrative about the fetus being separate from the woman's body. And all this was creeping me out. So when I, when I was conceding this um, project, I really hadn't been thinking about fragrance. But it, it came to me that it was like a perfume bottle and it would have these different stoppers that would come in and out to the different spheres that were one inside of the other inside of the other, representing time. And perfume is so amazing the way that it changes over time and it, it is a durational performance in some ways. And I had been working performance. So all of that, that's a sort of a long story, but uh, hopefully I've answered your question. No, totally. And so for those who haven't, you know, seen this this piece, uh, and, and we'll link to it, of course, but just to describe it visually, it's basically a series of glass spheres, one inside the other with sort of uh, openings uh, and stoppers that appear to be the different planets. Is that correct, Carrie? Did I get that right? Yeah. So that, you know, the planet, the stoppers themselves, I had to give that sort of more of an illustration feel with the the glass being blown and sanded and stuffed in a way, sandblasted in a way that would look like different planets. But the key to this is that each of those openings where you insert the stopper is also the structural component that suspends one of those spheres inside the next one. So they're all separate from each other. None of those liquids touch each other. They're all suspended within each other. And when you have the different colors, you know, of, of perfumes, and I've dyed some sometimes, so you get a lot of different colors. It's a it's a really beautiful illustration of the kind of containment that we sort of conceptually when we conceive of the world. Let me put it that way. You know, we think about our minds inside of our bodies, our bodies inside of the social sphere. That right. social sphere is inside of the world. The world is inside of the solar system, inside of the galaxy, you know, galaxy cluster, universe. You can keep going. Um, but this is this is how we live. This is our consciousness. Yeah. Um, and so I have a question about the, the scents themselves. Like, how did you uh, associate various scents with various, uh, you know, um, I guess, spheres <laughs> in this case? Yeah. No. So each of those scents that were created, which I did with my collaborator, Karen Reitzel, who is a super sniffer, she can she can break down any scent anywhere. She and I were thinking about things that that had that sense of the connection of the human body to the planet. So seasonal 
sense, things that brought up different ideas about the time and the year in which we, in which you live. And then the other part of it was me thinking about the references that I'd been working with prior to this piece, which had to do with science fiction, science fiction film, props, cultural discourse, and outer space, scientists, female bodies, a lot of these things, you know, gender and science, technology and desire kind of those are that's kind of the nexus of of a lot of my practice. So one um, one story that really encapsulated a lot of this for me is Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness. And I called one of my sense Kemmer. Kemmer is in her novel, the time and phase in these humanoids lives, these humanoids on another planet. They're non-gender specific creatures and they um, they mate during this time in the Kemmer phase. And they, they kind of like choose a gender at that point, depending on the, the relationship, the proximal relationship that they have. So uh, Kemmer was a very interesting scent, and it had a reaction that got me thinking about scent in a lot of different ways. So it became a kind of distributed performance amongst the people that came to the show, the multi-sphere show. And then I had Kemmer available as little samples, and people could take it away with them. What I learned is that people took the scent away and then used it in their own for their own purposes in their own way. What I liked about that is that it dispersed the idea of performance away from the artist to this participatory audience, you know, kind of kind of like a relational aesthetics uh, piece, but with a certain privacy, you know, it didn't have to happen in the gallery. And a lot of it was conceptual and some people just kept it with them. Some people That's carried amazing. it around in case they had an emergency camera moment. <laughs> uh, how would you deploy camera in an emergency? <laughs> you know, you you might be like, wow, I've never been attracted to someone of this gender before. I better get ready with my camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So so after the after the, the multispheres project, you, you then uh, produced another art project or created another art project called the Homesickness Kit. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? So the homesickness kit was definitely an out, outgrowth having worked with the sense. And I started thinking about how they could be useful as orientation devices. And that this is the beginning of like the next phase of my work, thinking about bodies as receivers, sent as language, the communication and the sort of the grounding aspect of scent and the way that it connects our embodied self to our planet. So the homesickness kit was conceived of as a palliatory device that could be employed by astronauts or long-term space travelers that would help them remember and connect back to Earth, their their home. In this are eight different scents, and they are in kind of articulating a sphere that opens like an orange. There are different um, segments that can be popped open and it's a solid perfume. And each of those scents were taken from some research with uh, Gail Knowles. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Gail Knowles is a New York artist who in 2000 launched a project called the World Sensorium, which is a series of botanical perfumes blended proportionally to each nation's population vis-a-vis the world in the year 2000. And all that was drawn from Dr. Gail Knowles' Wikipedia page. 
Carrie and I had a weird internet connection for the rest of our conversation, so let's imagine her calling in from outer space. So Gail and I were in conversation, and I said, well, Gail, I'd love to you know, use some of that research to come up with something that I could use for this, this kit. So she helped me design it so that they were eight cents that in context works as one perfume or that could be broken out into smaller combinations. So this customizable experience that would have these layers that could be, that could relate to someone's cultural intelligence, but also to what we are essentially as humans, which, you know, have to do with the foods that we've cultivated and that we choose to surround ourselves with. Something like jasmine is very interesting in my own research. I learned that jasmine has an actual uh, calming effect on our autonomic nervous system. So when we have jasmine tea, when we use jasmine in face lotions or perfumes, it, it is actually affecting our system of breathing, our heart rate. And it's it's a very interesting combination of pleasure and like a, a medical uh, palliatory device. So that was that was a very important component of that. And, and with that, I can then build out, I can actually ground my fantastical ideas into something that has, uh, you know, scientific merit. Okay, I wanted to ask you about the chemosphere. Yes, is related to the homesickness kits in that on the homesickness kit, there's a hand-painted map of the celestial um, location of, of Earth. So from Earth, from the sphere, what you would be seeing surrounding us. And that, that same constellation laid out flat became a map that I could project different ideas about scent onto. It's really a game of connect the dots, I would say. There, there's a history of people doing this. Obviously, you look at the sky and you see things, you imagine what's there. But we have these traditional constellations that are based in myth. Um, and I started to think, well, what if they were based in organic chemistry and that organic chemistry? This is part of me just having drawn a lot of organic chemistry over the last you know, five years and just seeing dots everywhere and, and loving loving the process of illustrating molecules and their interactions. So I'm looking at, into the sky one night and I just think not here, obviously, cause you can't see the stars, but um, in Colorado, actually I was looking at them and thinking, you know, what if you could see the chemistry of, of earth when you looked up there and what would that chemistry be? Is that, that, that's kind of the short answer. And then there was like scratch and sniff components that, and me doing demonstrations at different space conferences and getting a lot of strange, um, strange looks, but also great questions and um, people being very curious. But this, it's the kind of wingnut thing that you can expect from an artist who goes to talk to people who are, you know, more based in. Uh, space sciences, planetary sciences. And so how did you select the aromatic components that go on the map? It started from research that had been done at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics, where they were seeing through infrared spectrometry around different stars, looking at gas clusters and, and seeing the reflected light 
um, and analyzing that spectrum. They, they saw that there was a huge amount of ethyl formate in these intergalactic clouds. And interestingly enough, ethyl formate, although it's toxic and, you know, no perfumer is going to have just bunches of ethyl formate sitting around, but it has a smell of raspberries and rum. That intrigued me because I thought, okay, we've got scent floating around out there in space. But not just that, there are also precursors to molecules that, of life, to DNA. And first, you, you can look for precursors to amino acids, and then there are also amino acids found on meteorites. And all of this leads to the conclusion that many have said that we are created out of star stuff. I think that was uh, Carl Sagan, badly paraphrased idea. So uh, the sense that I started looking for kind of had to have those criteria. They had to connect to our planet. They had to be plentiful in space itself. And they had to have connections to, to be sense, but also to be precursors to amino acids. That was artist Carrie Patterson based in Los Angeles. You can learn more about her on her Instagram page at Patterson underscore Carrie, and that's Patterson with one T. Life twittering on a warm spring breeze. New flower blossoms sing seductively. Sweet syrup dripping from birds of paradise. Lady Anna appears, then is gone on the wind. Green bursting anywhere it can find the sun. Lawn mowers purring in the distance, the better offs drink tea in their private gardens. Air foggy with big dreams, lost thoughts in a kaleidoscope of sugar crystals. That was Earth by Donna Lipowitz, who many of you have heard before on this program. You can learn more about Donna at DonnaLipowitzSmells.com. Now, Artist Audra Wallowick has made a practice of exploring sound and the material qualities of language. She is interested in how sound can create spaces of listening and connection, and her pieces often give voice to things that we take for granted. The air, the ocean, cement. I asked her to join us because of her work Say the Sea, which invited people to create and record the sound of the ocean using their voice or breath. The result was a participatory public project, the formation of a chorus, and a collective body of sound. Of course, there was a huge scent component as well. So we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the uncapturable, sort of uncharted territories. And, and the reason I wanted to talk to you about it is because you did this project about the ocean. So I wanted to start just asking you, Audra, um, how do you imagine the unfathom, unfathom, the unfathom, oh, why can't I say it? <laughs> unfathomable how do you imagine the unfathomable <laughs> hard to imagine hard to say yeah with this uh, with the perfume it was a collaboration with a friend who's a scent designer Tara Pelletier and I've been working with sound and I had this opportunity to show this sound installation at a gallery in Brooklyn and um, the the kind of overall theme or ideas were um the ocean or the sea. And I was kind of interested in it as a, as, as an actual place, right? Like the sea as, mm -hmm. um, 
as the sea that you go to, but also see like the ocean as a um, imagined space, this kind of like vast, um, this like vast place that we can also um, imagine. And then I was also interested in our, in our bodies as water working in sound. That's kind of a, um, it's an ephemeral experience to listen and it's also embodied. It's felt in some way. And I was thinking of other ways that those ideas could come across. And I approached Tara and asked if um, she would be interested in creating a scent that might uh, capture a memory of the sea or an imagined experience of the sea that will, uh, you know, could be part of the show as well. So that's kind of how it, that's how it started. So how did Tara start thinking about it? Or how did your conversations go? Were you, for instance, approaching the sea from a literal perspective in addition to that sort of imagination that you that you spoke of? It was an imagined kind of memory of the sea. And we just uh, had a communication back and forth um, over texting and email. And I sort of described like what I was thinking about in terms of the, the saltiness, the maybe quality of the air, the heat of the sun, the sort of like wild nature of the shore, like where the water meets the land and not because it's all, it's, it can be a little cliche. I think thinking of the ocean and the shore is like very beautiful or even tropical, but I was thinking um, about things being you know, washed up on the shore or what happens to like the smell of drying seaweed that where it's almost like bordering on decay. Mm-hmm. And if we could mix those in with some deeper scents. And so we just had a conversation about it. There was this poem also, this um, Pablo Neruda poem. There was a line from his writing that I was really interested in. And it was, um, you know, will you bring us seaweed from the moon? And that ended up being the title wow. of the scent. How beautiful. Yeah, which kind of has a longing, has a loss about it. Um, yeah. So I tried to stay in that maybe evocative, intangible, tangible place. Mm. Yeah. I, I, that's interesting because there's also the connection, of course, with the moon and the tides. And and so, although it's a little um, incongruous, that idea of seaweed from the moon at the same time, there's a sort of resonance that makes sense, weirdly, poetically, at least, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and so I wanted to ask you also about your concrete sound project, which is, as far as I understand, is sort of an attempt to capture the physicality of something that is, you know, inherently non-physical. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the concrete sound are uh, concrete cast forms that could go on the wall or the floor, and they're based on um, or cast directly from acoustic paneling. And some have the kind of grainy, foamy texture of the sound foam, the acoustic panels, and some um, I make that have a flatter appearance to them. And I was thinking about the materiality of concrete and the almost a materiality or immateriality of sound and merging those two things together and kind of playing with the idea of of a language of poetry, of concrete poetry, and how the word concrete is used to talk about something visual, um, something tangible. And I was also looking at these acoustic mirrors, which are these old pre-radar technology forms that are on the coast of England and France used to detect oncoming troops. And they're these big concrete 
kind of dome-shaped structures that uh, gathered and reflected the sound into a single point where you could hear not terribly far, maybe 20 miles or so. But I thought that was interesting that concrete was used in communication and almost it uh, bounced the, the sound off of it. And I was looking at images of anechoic chambers, these chambers without echo that are used for uh, testing and sound recording and how in black and white images, those very geometric forms of this of the sound foam uh, in those spaces looked a little bit like concrete. And so I, I merged the two together, almost like refusing its performance as a acoustic panel um, and becoming a, a, a silent form or a resistant form. I like that project a lot because there is something so ephemeral about sound and then there's something so concrete about concrete, you know, so, <laughs> yeah. so to sort of use something so heavy and physical to, to relate to something so unphysical, I thought it, it spoke to me as, as someone who also works a lot with scent because there's, do you see parallels actually between working with scent and working with sound in your practice? I do. Yeah. I mean, there's something about listening and smelling. It's a difference um, in in the art world. It's very visual based, right? It's kind of like looking at things. And um, I'm really interested in how our bodies are in space. And so uh, listening and hearing has also, has always been very important. And I think scent has a similar capability of, um, you know, tuning into our bodies, kind of experiencing something, being aware of experiencing something. Um, and scent has, has such a memory trigger that um, I also find super interesting and how it lingers. It, it can change on your skin over time. It has a, like a volume to it almost. What brought you to working with scent? Did you have any earlier instincts about scent or interest in working with scent in your practice before say the sea? I mean, I've always been interested in, in scent um, just in my, in my daily life. And I think I've used it to, to calm anxiety. There are certain scents I like a lot that are very grounding for me. And so I understood the power of it kind of in a daily, just a daily living and I was wondering if I could have that be like more part of the work. Also, if not, I don't really have a lot of experience on the on the chemical side or the chemistry side, like mixing things and um, have the knowledge of it. And so Tara was very experienced and super knowledgeable. And it was really nice to be in conversation with her too, not only like learning about the different ingredients, you know, but to have that kind of back and forth uh, conversation. But yeah, I'd like to do more. And I think there's something very powerful about it. Um, and I think it's an interesting way to sort of think about an idea, um, like a concept, but also how to think about our bodies. And I think we're in a time that that's super important. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, especially as our bodies have become so central to anxiety, you know, the last mm-hmm. the last years with COVID and all that. Yeah. Yeah. So what are you what are you working on now? What's your next project? What's your next field of research? I'm working on some more sculptures and more cast concrete and trying some other materials. I'm going to try um, uh, clay and ceramic. And I have been working on a new sound score, which I'm not totally sure how it'll exist, um, but it's 
how I normally approach these sound scores is there's a text or an article or a piece of writing that is really interesting or evocative. And so there is this um, Agua Viva by Clarice Lispector, mm. which loosely translates to living water. And I love, I love her writing and the book itself. And I've been trying to think about how can I um, extract things or edit things or distill things. That's normally how I approach the sound scores is mm. this existing text that has a editing process. So I've been taking the letter O's out of it. And so you sort of mm. see this series of O's across, across the pages and sort of interested in, in the idea of a circle or a bubble or a note and how it can have loose associations um, to those ideas. Fantastic. Thank you for your time, Audra. And by the way, I just want to say for the record, clay and cement both carry scent beautifully. Oh, okay. Putting that out there. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. And would you, like, would that be something that the scent would be um, just like applied to and then yeah. the scent would need to be composed to, to sort of last a little longer, like base note heavy, you know what I mean? But, but, okay, you, know, okay. you, you know, and then it carries the scent and it's typically fairly subtle. So people, it's not overpowering. So sometimes people need to get, depending on the scent, need to get up close and personal, but maybe that's something. Yeah. No, I like that. Well, Cause there's an intimacy to that, you know, uh, okay. yeah, just, you know, put Great. the bug in your ear. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's so nice to talk to you. That was Audra Wallowick sharing some thoughts about an uncharted territory that fascinates her, the ocean, and her interest in visualizing the non-visual. You can learn more about Audra at audrawallowick.com, and Wallowick is spelled W-O-L-O-W-I-E-C. Mars, Ascent Hypothesis. Mars smells like the opposite of Earth. Was there life? It looks like us when we are gone. Cold. Dust. Remnants. Fourth planet from the sun. Earth is the third. I took the life out of Earth, and this was what was left. Then I added dreams of flying through space in a spaceship, David Bowie on my mind. Commencing countdown, engines on. Three. One, zero, zero, and liftoff, liftoff, Americans return to space as Discovery clears the tower. That was Mars by Donna Lipowitz, and the poem was illustrated by sounds from NASA. The liftoff of Discovery in 1984 and the first sounds human have heard of Mars, recorded in February 2021. Here's a bit more. Our last guest, Helga Griffiths, is an artist based near Frankfurt, Germany, who has been working with scent since the very early 90s. She joined me for this conversation from her studio outside Frankfurt. So Helga, um, I understand you started working with scent in 1991 when you were in the S, or you became interested in scent uh, in -hmm. the context of your arts practice. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to work with scent in the beginning? 
Yes, I worked um, an installation that was like an archaeological excavation site. So I created figures from concrete, and for the atmosphere, I used uh, very I used soil and very powdery slate, and I uh, treated the figures with uh, patina chemicals. So there was this very special smell about it, like the metallic powders and um, vinegary smells, but I think it was mostly the soil and the slate that created this atmosphere. And I realized that uh, the public was reacting much, much more emotional much stronger and it was also uh, evoking memories so the, there was such a strong reaction to it and and so um what were your first projects that were consciously engaging with scent my very first project was traces of nature where i did like a distillation i was researching an area and distilled some of the plants and i also researched weather like i created weather sense so I created a sculpture that looked very much like a brain like this folding space of a brain and uh, created weather sense which I later followed up but I also uh, worked the first time with blind people so I did interviews with blind uh, students actually this was in Marburg there's a city specialized on blind where the sound of the traffic you know when you cross when you cross the road everything uh, is made for blind people So I asked them about how they find their orientation and they talked about smell. So that was really when I kind of realized I have to work with this more intensely. I I remember one description, there was a blind person and he was on an island and he, there were lots of horses, horse carriages. So he knew where the sea was, like the smell of the sea, and he knew where the horses was. So he could like kind of find his orientation. It was very interesting stories. And I was very intrigued. Then later, I did a project in Paris where I also worked with a blind uh, woman, actually, for almost two years. And I did lots of blind walks together with her and recreated the essence of a walk uh, with the perfume of Karl-Heinz Borg, with whom I've worked for a long, long time. And this would have been the the, the mid-90s, is that correct? Roundabout no, 90s. actually, this was 2001 when okay. I started. I had a residency at uh, Cité des Arts in Paris. And the Sniffman was actually before that. That was in 2000 uh, when I exhibited at the Hygiene Museum in Dresden. So um, I started this project actually in the 90s, but that was uh, when I just did the interviews with the blind people. And then I realized uh, that it would be very interesting to recreate the smells that they were describing. And actually it was very um, interesting because it was very unusual for the public to at the same time to look, to hear and to smell. And I realized many uh, people uh, perceived the exhibition twice. They 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 looked at it and listened to the stories, but then when they smelled, they immediately closed their eyes. And I realized it was very, very new, this kind of perception. The sniffment was something you would re- wear around your neck, and um, it was radio-controlled, so on a tiny chip we had the sense from the interviews. But actually, I realized um, later on it would be more interesting if people wouldn't be so conscious uh, when the scent would be coming. They shouldn't be so conscious with a tool. Uh, I think it should be without a tool. I think the scent should be uh, something that's invisible, yeah. But I think uh, technically it was very, very interesting.
Yeah, there is that debate, right? Do you make the sense something that people are aware is coming or do you allow it to be? I think the perception is different. Uh, If the scent just comes and then you don't realize what it is, where it's coming from. But if you see where it's coming from, it's a different perception. Yeah, it's more because you're primed to receive, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so your collaboration with Carl Heinz Bork um, continued and you, you started working with uh, the smells of the planets and later with the Big Bang. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, we're all made out of uh, atoms that were actually uh, created in the Big Bang. So I think it's something that's within our bodies and it's the origin. So I think I'm very interested in the element of time, you know. Uh, where, where do we come from? So I think it's very interesting that we create a scent that's in a way also related to our own bodies. We're made out of stardust, you know, and then it's related to space. It's something that people kind of, they dream about space. There's this kind of dream. Yes, uh, people have always looking up into space. So there's this connectedness, yet it's something... Um, that no human being has experienced themselves with their bodies. You know, there's a lot of imagination in this work. I think, of course, I work with scientists, for example, for the planetary sense, I I went to Berlin and I interviewed the scientists from the Institute for Planetary Research. So I asked them about the climate of the planets. So this was the origin, but yet I think it's something that's really has to do very much with imagination. What kind of place would it be? Yet it's not, uh, It's. I mean, some of the planets are very toxic, you know, or they're gas planets. I mean, so new, no human being has ever been there. And I think uh, also smells are like, uh, they're like time machines, you know. So we travel back in time with smells because they evoke memories. But at the same time, they're kind of dreams and also connected to emotions, of course, which is uh, which I find most interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the because uh, because I was thinking, of course, oh well, you know, there have been astronauts, but you're right that even the astronauts, their experience of space has been mediated by a sort of climate controlled suit. Yeah. So so really, no human has experienced space fully, you know, like, um, what was it like to work with the scientists? I mean, the data informed the sense, but as you said, there's a bit of imagination in there, right? How did you and Mr. Bork navigate that? Well, I think the base was we worked with, um, with climate before. I did a whole installation about different climate scents that was also exhibited, I think, at Art Frankfurt Fair. I created this machine. Uh, so I think that was the base. And some of the planets are very Earth-like, you know. I mean, I think like Mars, uh, which is a very volcanic landscape. So in a way, we have ideas what it could or we, we can imagine what it could feel like. And of course, we know the chemistry of the planets. We know what iron looks like, you know, so, so Mercury is, is, is full of iron. So we know what that smells like or like uh, Venus has a lot of uh, lightnings. So we know we know the smell of lightning, you know, this, which is an ozone smell. So we work from there, you know, but of course, a lot of it is imagination and it goes back and forth between Mr. Bork. I mean, uh, I have an idea, I describe it and it goes back and forth, the suggestions and what I think. And actually, we've been working for so long, you know, it's uh, it's really a, a very good teamwork. Yes. Oh, it's lovely to have that level of collaboration. And also, I think it's not that easy because I think uh, most commercial perfumers 
because they think in a different way. I don't think in a very commercial way. I think in a very artistic uh, way. So I'm not interested in the commercial perfumery, but more in kind of what it what it does to the perceiver. So it's opening up worlds, worlds of emotions. I mean, worlds of memories, you know. I think that's why I really like to work with smells. I mean, also all the exhibitions I've created, uh, it was amazing to see how the public how they reacted if they would be in a very rational exhibition trying to understand the topic, but then uh, to work with so much imagination and with so much emotion. Uh, people really love it, yeah. So you worked with Mr. Bork on A Smell for the Big Bang. So so how did you start imagining that? Because that is so beyond the scope of human imagination. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we went, I think we just went uh, back and forth of course, you're very interested in, you know, I, I think in the elements, you know, and it had to be something very forceful. It was not supposed to be something pleasant, not like a perfume, you know, nothing flowery. So we were really working uh, with the elements. I think that was that was the base, how we, we started to work. And um, I can't tell you the different ingredients, <laughs> but uh, one of them was, I think, birch tar. Uh, that we used uh, to create this. My niece is an astrophysicist, so I get a lot of uh, information from them. And my husband is also a chemist, so I get a lot of scientific uh, feedback. <laughs> that is very useful. <laughs> yeah. And for our listeners, birch tar is a little bit of a burnt, sort of almost sticky smell that really sticks in the back of your of your nose when you smell it. It has a very rich kind of depth to it. But yeah, it doesn't smell like, as you said, a light flower or anything like that. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. It was not meant to be. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk now about a more contemporary piece called Space Souvenirs, which I understand is actually on view right now in Shanghai. Is that correct? Yes, Space Souvenirs is on view in Shanghai at the Museum of Contemporary Art. And it has been on view also very recently at Kunstmuseum Zelle. There was a very interesting show. It was called Parallel Worlds art, science, and fiction. So this work was really, uh, yeah, fitting very well to the topic. So tell us a little bit about what Space Souvenirs is, what the piece is, you know, how you came to it. Well, the, the idea was, like I said before, that uh, smell is like a time machine. And I was invited to an exhibition in Frankfurt at the Museum of Applied Art, and it was called Der Souvenir, so the souvenir. And so I wanted to create a souvenir of the planets. So I really, uh, so I showed the planets in, in uh, glass vessels and people could take a sample uh, from the planets to their homes. So the paper was traveling uh, with the people, you know. So it was a travel in several ways. It was a travel to the space uh, that many people haven't visited. So the imaginary travel to the space and then the travel uh, by the viewers who took who took the samples with them. I love the idea of a souvenir for a place you've never been. It's like a pure act of <laughs> yes. imagination, you know? Um, yes. What is it, do you think about outer space that captures our imagination as humans so much? Is it this desire to for new frontiers or for escape? Well, I think some of the planets we look up and I mean, Venus is one of the brightest planets. So we see them uh, with our eyes. And uh, I think it, there's a lot of curiosity in that. And of course, with the latest news and uh, I mean, I think the newest expeditions. I live in Darmstadt, where there's also the European Space Agency. So there's a lot of um, 
I guess, knowledge. There's a lot of discussion about space uh, in the media, in the people we meet. Uh, so there's a great interest. And of course, I think now with so much environmental changes, people really think about what would it be uh, if people could live on Mars so as a planet B. But I think for me, it's also something that no human being has ever experienced, something that would be uh, actually not very uh, friendly to life. You know, we, we wouldn't survive it. You know, it would be sulfuric. <laughs> um, yes, we wouldn't survive it. So in a way, it is a dream and maybe making us aware of our existence. Uh, I think smells make us really aware of our existence and they make us aware of, of memory. But I mean, in a way, uh, when you think of space, you think about uh, a distance, you know, space is being explored with technology. I mean, satellites, uh, no human being has seen them, you know. And here I come and create something that's so close, close to our nose that enters our bodies, you know. So it's it's a very interesting experience. And also, I think people wouldn't think about emotion and the planets in that way with smell. The first time I showed this, I showed it in a small, like I made a small box, which was like a scientific box, like as a scientist had taken the samples. So there were handmade glass objects and the perfumes were inside these glasses. So it was this idea of a historic 19th century expedition into space which I think it always has been the dream of mankind, yeah. I love the idea of the 19th century and then the space. Um, yes. It sounds like also scent for you is a way of, of allowing people to sort of comprehend the unfathomable. I mean, I'm sort of getting getting this idea of scent giving a tangibility to, or, you know, an intangible tangibility to people who mm -hmm. can't even begin to understand space in a way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I've done a very interesting project which was called Dark Gravity, which was actually uh, focusing on planet nine. Uh, that's the planet that has never been seen, but uh, they could only detect it by the influence on the other planets. So actually I made a projection and I also created a scent and it was actually based on a neurotransmitter oxytocin, which is also kind of creating trust. It's also called liquid trust. So we created a scent on the base of this neurotransmitter. And I think that's a very interesting way because it's relating the human brain as if it was kind of a planet or an object in space, you know. It's relating the human body to the space. And it's also relating the idea of the planet nine and the proximity, how a scent could influence the behavior of people in space if they would get closer to each other or if they would kind of avoid each other. So in this way, it's a very psychological idea, creating empathy with scent, you know. Uh, and I think that's a very interesting idea for the future, to think about empathy and smell. And also, I think trust, trust is a big topic at the moment. I think the corona crisis has made us even more aware of smell. And I think it has made us all even more aware that people lose the sense of smell, how tragic that is to lose the sense of smell, and how smell can be used to detect uh, if we have corona or not. Uh, and I think also, yes, our behavior has changed. And I think smell helps us 
in a way uh, to get back to normal afterwards through this, I think. And I think people are more and more aware of smell and it has to do with well-being. I mean, I work with scientific topics, but yet um, I put in my own imagination And uh, I think I don't just illustrate the scientific topics, but I love science, but I try to create new questions. And I think scientists usually love my work because it gives them new ideas they would not think of. (laughs) And tools for communication, too. I mean, I I know it's difficult sometimes for scientists to communicate to to regular people, you know, so. Yes. Um, Well, Helga, this was a fascinating talk. I'm really excited we took the time to really talk about it more extensively. Me too. And please stop by if you come via Frankfurt. That was Helga Griffiths, and you can learn more about Helga at helgagriffiths.de. And that was our show. Perfume on the Radio is produced by the Institute for Art and Olfaction, which is a nonprofit devoted to experimentation and access in the field of perfumery. Credits for this episode go out to Emmett James for the intro song, Maxwell Williams, Stephen Rimlinger, and Darian Zahedi for the melodic interstitials, and Cameron and the whole team at the very awesome nonprofit Lookout FM. We got the music for this episode from MuseOpen.com and the Open Music Archive, and we list it on our website at perfumeontheradio.com. And like many beautiful things, it's all in the public domain. I am Saskia Wilson-Brown. It's been my pleasure to host the show, and I hope it gave you good fodder for stargazing. The episode, like all others, will be archived on perfumeontheradio.com. If podcasts are your thing, you can also download it on a podcast provider of your choice and enjoy it in a location of your choice, just maybe not in open space. We'll see you in a few weeks, and until then, friends, keep it kind, keep it real, and keep it smelly. Perfume on the radio. This is Perfume on the Radio on Lookout FM. This is Perfume on the Radio. Tune in just a stereo. This is Perfume on the Radio on Lookout FM. This is Perfume on the Radio. Tune in just a stereo. This is Perfume on the Radio on Lookout FM. You're listening to Perfume on the Radio on Lookout FM.